Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to a netcast, something that didn't exist a few years ago. A few years from now, will this new media go the way of the rotary phone? This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs. I'm talking with Shamila Nebrijani, Chief Operating Officer of the BBC's Future Media and Technology Division. That makes her a key player in the frenetically evolving world of media. Her task is to help the BBC improve its position in the digital age while facilitating communication among users. She also serves on the Human Fertilization Authority and the Human Tissue Authority, where she deals with complex ethical issues such as organ transplantation and stem cell research. She's currently a World Fellow at Yale University. The program gathers emerging leaders from around the globe for professional and leadership development. I'm interested in the name of your division, future media, not new media. What can we read into that language? Well, I think if you were to stop a student in the street um, at Yale and ask them what does new media mean, they would say it means the web. Mm-hmm. And at a time where the majority of households, certainly in Europe, have broadband access, they use the web for their text-based services, they transact in the web, I would say new media has become old media, mm-hmm. or it's become media. Uh, what we're trying to do in the BBC is to think about the next wave of media. So what will future media be? And I think that might be things as exciting as uh, the television received to your mobile phone or being able to download um, some of our archive programming to your personal um, organizer or even some of the really exciting virtual reality uh, things like Second Life and the Beeb for example we um, were the first broadcaster to put our news billboards in Second Life and that to me is kind of the exciting world of future media. Now okay Second Life you're talking to an old person. So Second Life is a whole new parallel universe um, that kind of uh, that lives alongside our world. So mm-hmm. you can be uh, you can go into Second Life. You can pick yourself an identity. You can pick the way you look. Uh, you can go and trade in in Second Life for Linden dollars. You can buy houses, and people are making money. They're making mm-hmm. livelihoods uh, in Second Life. Um, it becomes an all-consuming media. So if you go there, go there um, carefully because you mm-hmm. may never speak to a, a real person again. <laughs> In the history of communication technology, from the printing press to radio to TV, the message has only traveled in one direction, and that's changing. How far do you see user participation going? Well, uh, last summer when we had the subway bombs in the UK, um, we sent our radio crews down there. We sent our outside broadcast lorries down there to get the first catch, capture the first images, uh, and it became really clear to us that the most moving images that came from that terrible, terrible disaster was video footage people had taken on their mobile phones. It was immediate. It was live. It was personal, and that to me showed a kind of sea change in the UK, certainly, of people telling us mm-hmm. the stories, and they were there when we weren't. Uh, so I think that now, now that we've kind of crossed that barrier, two-way communication is now the language of broadcasting. The days when the BBC could sit back and tell you what to watch at 8.30 are long gone. Uh, nowadays, we might show you what might be available at 8.30. Mm-hmm. You're going to take little bits of it and put it on your own website. You're going to email it to your friends. You're going to make your own footage and post it on our website. So the 
the age of two-way communication, I think, is firmly here to stay. However, um, in a world where there is so much user-generated content, I would say that you're going to look to media companies like the BBC to help you to find your way in that really complicated world. Um, so our role as trusted guides mm -hmm. to that user-generated content, I think, um, becomes even more important. Um, and I, I, I turn to the words of uh, Professor Larry Lessig here from the US, who said, I want to encourage my kids to write every day. I want them to post their stuff on the web. Um, I want them to read each other's work, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop reading Hemingway anytime soon. <laughs> and I think that's kind of where I think the media will Because go. it can be babble. It can be hard to sort through it really can. the wheat and the chaff. It really can. And I think, in a way, people get better at it the more they do. Mm -hmm. um, our views of what's good and what's bad will change over a period of time. But you're still going to want you know, somebody trusted telling you what's happening in the news or what, you know, what to read. You also work with agencies that license in vitro fertilization clinics and that regulate organ donation area is really full of controversy. So why take that on? Mm. Well, I'm passionate about science. I was a scientist at, at university. And when I first started uh, that line of work, it was because I was interested in the science. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've been doing that for about seven years now. And I realize that I'm involved in some of the most important and exciting um, uh, ethical issues uh, in the world today. Just the week before I came to Yale, I was thinking about um, two, two kind of distinct cases, the first of which was uh, whether or not in the UK we should license the creation of animal-human hybrid embryos for mm -hmm. research purposes. That's a really, really tricky issue. If we say yes, we're definitely going to increase uh, the speed with which we can research cures for things like Parkinson's or spinal cord injuries. Really, really worthwhile things. On the other hand, that's a really, really radical scientific invention. Should we really be creating animal hybrids, animal-human hybrids? Well, thinking those sorts of things through are just fascinating. I kind of related to that. Um, we've been thinking about things like, um, should we be able to screen embryos for diseases that might um, m might occur later on in their life. Mm -hmm. So already you can screen embryos for diseases that you know are inherited at birth. But should we screen embryos for um, diseases like breast cancer, which might occur when a, when a woman is 40 or 45, um, and, and select a way for that? Well, again, some fantastically difficult ethical issues. And some of the work I've been doing here at Yale has exactly been talking to faculty and students here about your own embryonic stem cell uh, debate, which is big in, in federal government right now. Should it be allowed? Should it not? What are the pros and cons? So uh, really kind of meaningful uh, and fantastically interesting questions. It must be a tremendous responsibility. I mean, look, the genetic screening question. Mm. Um, on the one hand, you could do great prevention mm. with people. On the other hand, would people select out embryos? Would people face discrimination in employment or yeah. obtaining insurance? Yeah. So how do you how do you wrestle with issues that big? Well, we wrestle is exactly uh -huh. the right verb. We have a committee of people. There are 18 of us. Some of us are scientists. Some of us are clergy. Some of us are um, ethicists. And some of them are, are people like me with understanding of the media. Um, and we really do grapple with the issues. We, um, we consult widely. We consult with the public. We're trying uh, to get a, a big debate going on in the UK in the media so that we understand what the public feels about these things. The answer is there's no easy answer. Mm -hmm. One is is always balancing um, 
forces for good and things that society might find worrying. Uh, the example, for example, on hybrids, for example, um, it's taken us about a year to get to this position where we think that society in the UK is ready to tolerate some degree of creation of those sorts of cells in the knowledge that we're going to advance research in some diseases that are dreadfully debilitating. Um, but we have to move cautiously. We have to do that in a way that um, the public feels comfortable with and also we need to be able to sleep at night. Is the character of the debate different in the UK than it is here? Here, bio issues seem to me to be amazingly polarizing, yeah. um, and people sort of start talking bumper stickers at each other fairly quickly. Mm. I think that the, the quality of the debate is different. I think that you have a much uh, stronger religious lobby, and that makes that even the debate of these issues very tricky. Mm -hmm. uh, having said that, I think that we, we were in the UK and in Europe where you are about two years ago. So if you can get a live debate going in the press, if you can use um, the television and the radio to get um, the public talking about these things, mm -hmm. uh, that's half the battle won, I think. Um, my observation, I was talking at a stem cell address uh, here at the medical school last week and the scientists are really clear about the reasons they want to do this mm -hmm. uh, they're clear about the pros and cons what they're not clear about is how to make that message easily um, understandable and accessible to the public and I think that that's the role that the media can and should play in helping to get that debate going and are there ways that this more participatory media mm. that we're seeing could evolve to help in that debate? Well, I think that's exactly right. I think the internet provides a whole new way of getting a discussion of complex topics. Mm -hmm. um, and we've used that quite successfully across Europe. So there are many uh, discussion rooms and chat rooms which are moderated. So you have a scientist in the room who can try and explain some of the issues. Um, but the most important way, I think, of getting that debate going uh, is, is twofold. I think the television is unbeatable because we, you know, we get we we're beamed into everybody's living room at mm -hmm. eight o'clock. So you really can get some some uh, some complicated uh, uh, scientific explanation uh, discussed. Um, easily and I think the press is a fantastic way of doing that too so I think you know getting people talking about the issues we also invite special interest groups to come and talk to us at the authority um, in the hope that we can both learn from their experiences and from their views but also hope to kind of um, establish a dialogue with them. With both areas both the new media and biotechnical innovation. There's so much potential, but one of the big questions is how to put that potential to work for a broad spectrum of people. What needs to happen to make that work? Well, I think there's two things. I think the first thing, as we've been talking about already, is the proper discussion in the media mm -hmm. of those issues. But I think the other thing is if you are uh, a regulator, as we are in the UK, you need, to, you need to kind of get out of your ivory tower. It's no good kind of sitting in a room with a towel around your head thinking the answer on hybrids is X. Mm -hmm. Um, we need to engage with people and we need to hear from patients, we need to hear from scientists and from and from the wider community. And so we've run, for example, a roadshow that goes around the UK, uh, that talks to patients, that talks in schools, it talks to scientists, so that we get some sense of, uh, some sense of debate. I think the other thing I would say, and this is where, again, I draw a parallel between the UK and the US, is that um, 
it's really, really important that the media treats these issues responsibly. At the BBC, um, we've done quite a lot of work on how to, uh, to how to tackle controversial issues. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's really easy to be sensationalist, or it's really easy um, to be kind of pulled by one side of the lobby. And I think in the US, uh, it is a worry that you have such a degree of concentration of media right. in three or four large companies. Um, you won't get the debate if you don't have plurality. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried really about the way U.S. markets develop in that way. And how much does the U.S. media influence the rest of the world? in that sort of treatment of issues? I think very little, remarkably little, considering how important the US is in the global world. Uh, in the international marketplace, you'll know about Voice of America, for example, mm-hmm. which is a powerful uh, uh, radio station, particularly for the developing world. Um, but in um, certainly in Europe, uh, we see very little cross-coverage from the U.S. to European issues. Uh, in fact, I more see U.S. society tapping into European media. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been amazed by the number of people, for example, here at Yale and in D.C. and New York who tell me that the BBC's n- news site is their homepage. So I do think that the U.S. Uh, media is much more concentrated than you find in other environments of the world. It tackles issues in a different way, um, and I think it could foster more debate than it currently does. That's interesting, but it makes sense when you think about it because so many U.S. outlets are closing down their foreign bureaus. Yeah. So if you're in France, why listen? Because you're not going to hear much exactly French news. That. Yeah. Exactly that. What interested you in the World Fellows Program? Well, it's just the most incredible privilege, really, um, to come to Yale for six months and meet with faculty and with students um, and to be taken out of your your day job just seemed an amazing privilege. I think also I had never studied in the US before. I visited a lot on business and on holidays, but I never really had a chance to immerse myself in US society and in US culture. And this six months has really given me that. And I hope that the people that I've come into contact with uh, in the US will have learned a little bit about Europe uh, by my being here, but I know that when I go back to the UK, I'll have a really much richer insight into US society, into US politics, uh, and and also into European foreign, US foreign policy. And I can tell you, the biggest question in um, at dinner tables and dinner parties all around Europe is is about US foreign policy uh-huh. and about the way in which US foreign policy is developing and the change uh, with the presidential election. So I hope I'll bring a bit of that insight back to my home. Thank you. We've been talking with Sharmila Nebrajani, Chief Operating Officer of the BBC's Future Media and Technology Division. Ms. Nebrajani is currently a World Fellow at Yale University. To find out more about the program, visit yale.edu slash worldfellows.